Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Now we will be continuing in a series in Galatians called The Gospel of Grace. I don't know about you guys, but the last couple weeks have been really heart-touching and moving to me. It's caused me to open my eyes. God has caused these messages to cause my eyes to be open and have me think totally different about my brothers and sisters in Christ. I am excited that our church is getting a picture of what the kingdom must be like. Amen? At this time, Cynthia will come to read our scripture. And as Cynthia is coming to read our scripture, ask that we all that can and will please stand for the reading of God's word. Our reading today is Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. Well, if you were, uh, if you were with us last week as we've been looking at Galatians, we hit a moment uh, where Paul lays out really clearly the content of the message that he preached all over uh, the Greco-Roman world, the message that he'd preached in the churches of Galatia, and uh, it summarizes in Galatians 2.16, he says, we know that a person is not justified, is not made right with God or others by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the, the message that theologians call, uh, to give it a big word, justification by faith. Right, which simply means that God accepts us through the sacrifice of Christ, regardless of any works or contribution on our own part. That God's forgiveness in our lives is based solely on the work of Jesus and not uh, on the basis of the good things that we do towards God, not even our most fervent uh, attempts at religious devotion. Martin Luther uh, was one of the great champions of this uh, gospel uh, in the Protestant Reformation. He defined it this way. He says, the doctrine of justification is this, that we are pronounced righteous and saved solely by faith in Christ and without works. 
You know, Martin Luther uh, was a controversial figure at his time. People, uh, rulers of the European world at the time were marked by either uh, their embrace uh, at times of his, uh, what became known as the Protestant message or their resistance to it. And one of the early resistors of this message uh, was a man named Duke George of Saxony. And he said of Luther's doctrine, he said, this is a great doctrine to die by, but a lousy one to live with. This is a great doctrine to die by, but a lousy one to live with. What does he mean there? He means when you are facing death, when you're facing judgment, when you're facing the prospect of eternity, it's a good news and it's a comforting thing to hear that you're accepted into paradise, you're accepted into God's presence, uh, quite apart from anything that you do to contribute to it. But when you're looking for something practical to live your life by, a way to get people Uh, to do the right thing, uh, to get people to uh, be good and do good works and uh, try to obey the Bible and things like that. He's saying it's a lousy doctrine to actually motivate people to do good in their actual lives. And this really, from Paul's day through Luther's day to our own day, is one of the main uh, counter messages to the gospel of grace which is this, that if you, if you tell people that they are forgiven, that they are accepted by God without reference to their works, then why would anybody try to be good? Why would anybody try to do good works if their salvation, if, if their works never even enter into the equation of their salvation? Right? What will people do if we take away the, the carrot of heaven or the stick of hell to motivate them towards a good life? Some of you were blessed in our church to have a good number of teachers. Imagine if on the first day of class, you sat all of your students down and said, good news, you all get straight A's. Regardless of how hard you study, regardless of what you do, how you perform, the grades that you get, you all have straight A's. And now I just want you to have a great year, enjoy learning, and, and, and try hard out of the love of learning. Well, those of you who are teachers know that you would have set yourself up Uh, for a miserable school year, right? We're so used to the laws of reward and punishment. Do good, get good, do bad, get bad. It's wired into us from an early age. It's what orders so much of our lives. And so into that world, uh, the good news of salvation by grace alone, regardless of the good that we do, uh, seems like a recipe for chaos, it seems like a recipe for each one saying, oh, well, you know what, salvation in Christ is this uh, get-out-of-jail-free card, so now that I'm saved, it doesn't matter what I do with my life. And that's what Paul is dealing with here in Galatia. Uh, he's dealing with uh, some people who came in after him, uh, these, these other teachers who came in and took his message and said, no, no, you know what, Paul said is good as far as it goes. Right? God's grace is how you start the Christian life. But then they, they said, but it's not enough. Right? You start with Jesus, you start with forgiveness, but then you have to round out what Jesus has done for you by observing the law of Moses. Particularly, they were after the issues of circumcision, everybody's got to be circumcised, and uh, the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Everyone needs to begin to eat uh, like God's Israelite people in the Old Testament had eaten. So it was a Jesus plus Moses equals salvation. 
uh, grace to get you in the door, into the family, but then rules and regulations and law for how you grow in the life. And so what Paul brings uh, to the Galatians is simply a reminder. It's drawing them back to the fundamental message of the gospel that he had preached. To remind them that you never move on from Jesus to go on towards other things, but you're constantly moving back towards Jesus for what you need in your life. That there's never in the Christian life more than Jesus, uh, but there's always more of Jesus uh, for us to draw near to and to get to know. That it's not that we start with the gospel and then move on to other things, but that we go deeper and deeper into the message into the person of Jesus and live out of that message in every area of our lives. Paul begins this section with some of his strongest language. He's been pretty strong with the Galatians prior to this, but we can tell that Paul is passionate about what he's saying because look at how he starts, 3-1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, J.B. Phillips uh, was an English theologian in the mid-1900s who produced a paraphrased translation of the New Testament. Here's how he translates these words, O foolish Galatians, I love it. He says, O you dear idiots of Galatia. (laughs) Dear idiots of Galatia. Right, what are you doing? It gets it it Paul's disgust, his shock at what's happening here. Who's tricked you? Right, who's bewitched you? It seems like you've fallen under some kind of magic spell. And Paul's at a loss to explain what's happening in these churches, that they've so quickly, we said that this is about three years after Paul uh, left Galatia. So he goes, he plants the church, he preaches the gospel, then he goes on as he did to plant other churches and do other work. And within three years, they've abandoned that foundation and have started reverting back uh, to the law of Moses, uh, to Old Testament religious conformity as a marker, as a way to make sure that you truly are approved by God. Imagine, uh, it'd be like if you went to go visit a friend uh, and you walk into your friend's house and you notice that it's pitch black dark inside. And you say, hey, can we have some light? And instead of turning on a light switch, they light a candle or they light a lantern and they give it to you and say, yeah, here's some light. And you say, oh man, I'm thirsty. I'd like something to drink. And they say, oh yeah, you want water? Here's what we do for water around here. Uh, Here's a bucket. Uh, We walk down uh, to McCoy's Creek and we fill it up and then we bring the bucket back then we boil it to clean it. Uh, And then here, you've got water. You would say to this friend, why have you turned your back on indoor electricity and running water? Right? Are things okay financially? Right? Did you miss your bill? And they say, no, no, I can pay the bill. I can pay the bill. There's enough in the bank account to pay the bill. I I just want to go back to using candlelight instead of electricity and heating my own water. You would say, what kind of nonsense? Who who told you this was a good idea? What kind of, you know, hipster simple living blog have you read uh, that's told you not only to go back to record players, but to go back to uh, creek water and no electricity? And that's essentially what Paul is saying. He's saying, you've gone backwards in a way that does not make sense. People used to have to live this way, right? There was a time where this was all there was. There are parts of this world where this is still the necessity, but you have moved past it. You've moved beyond the law of Moses. You've moved to the radical good news of grace in Christ. Why are you living backwards into what it cost Jesus so much to move out of? Why are you moving backwards 
into what was once useful but has outlived its usefulness. Who has bewitched you? And then Paul puts his finger, I think, on the dynamic uh, that's led them here. Verse 3. Yeah, he's, he does a series of rhetorical questions, but he asks in verse 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This word that's translated perfected here, uh, it doesn't necessarily have all the connotations that our English word perfect does, right? As though they're seeking after a total perfection of their moral lives. Uh, it comes from the Greek word telos, by which we get kind of end, fulfillment, completion, right? So the idea is having begun by the Spirit, having begun by grace freely given, in your quest after maturity and fullness and completion in your Christian life, have you reverted back to your own power, to your own self-effort, to your own energy? They're after the right goal. Paul says uh, elsewhere in his writings, uh, that completion, maturity, fullness is the goal of the Christian life. At one place, he describes his ministry as saying, our ministry is to present everyone mature in Christ, everyone complete and full in Christ. So the goal is completion, right? The goal is a fullness of life in Christ where we experience real fulfillment, real rest, real joy. But Paul is saying that your quest for fullness, your quest for more, has led you, instead of leading you deeper into Jesus, it's led you back into yourself. It's led you back on your own efforts. And friends, what was true then is true now. Uh, that we have to be wary. Uh, we have to be wary whenever somebody makes an appeal to us that starts along the lines of, you know, don't you think there has to be more? Don't you think there has to be more to this life than what you're currently experiencing? Right, and now, in some ways, uh, that is a great hook, right? If you want to sell books, uh, if you can convince people that the thing that you're selling is an offer of more than they're currently experiencing, right, don't you want more out of your family life? Don't you want more out of your spiritual life? Don't you want more out of your life with God? Right? The pull of more, the pull to a higher level, the, whole, the pull to, to finding a secret that's out there beyond what you've known is a powerful pull to us. But we need to be wary, especially as Christians, whenever that call to more is a call to something above and beyond a basic life of faith in Jesus, when it's a call to some kind of higher life, well, if you really want the Holy Spirit, you have to learn to pray in this way, say these kinds of things, do these certain rules, right? If you really want, if you want to be a really serious Christian, then it means that you cut these things out of your life or you start doing these things. If you want to be a part of the A-team of Christians, it means that you start taking these things more seriously and you set yourself off against those ordinary, everyday Christians that we know just aren't taking it all that seriously. Right? We have to be weary, lest the desire for more, the desire for fullness, uh, leads us away from Jesus. And so Paul unmasks uh, that their pursuit of fullness beyond Christ is really a false fullness. It's amazing, and, and it would have been, it's somewhat lost on us, but that, those words of verse 3, 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Uh, just how uh, brilliantly insulting these words would have been to his first hearers. Right? To, you know, when we think of flesh, flesh in the Bible means that human appetite, human desires. Uh, usually, uh, it carries the same connotations that you would have in your mind if I told you somebody, you know what, they're, they're really struggling with the sins of the flesh. You would think, oh, that's mostly sex stuff. Right? That's mostly the appetites. That's mostly the stuff that we want too much that leads us out of the straight and narrow. And Paul says that those appetites of the flesh can lead you that way. But what he's saying is that your attempts at a moral life, your attempts at law-keeping, your attempts at earning uh, your belonging and your standing before God, those are also an outworking of your flesh. That those are also an outworking of fallen desires. They come from a place of brokenness. They come from a place of human fleshly desire. Paul would say that, yes, your flesh might lead you into the strip club or into the bar, but it's also possible that it leads you into church. It's also possible that it leads you into the temple. It's also possible that it leads you into a life of rule-keeping and performance and religiosity. That though it might look very, very much different, it might look from the outside like, a, like an ideal Christian life, its inner motivation is one of self-reliance, self-satisfaction, self-aggrandizement. That you're living out of an inward bent towards self every bit as much as you would be uh, if your sin, if your flesh led you uh, into more disreputable places. And so he exposes the emptiness of what they're pursuing and then he points them to this true fullness in Christ. He essentially takes these people who are moving on to more and better things beyond Jesus. And he says, no, no, look, you need to realize where you have real fullness, where you find real completion in this life. And he essentially reminds them that they already have everything that they need to live a full life. All of the resources that they need for depth, for fullness, for more, uh, they've already gotten in Jesus. Look at verse 1, how he starts. Uh, after his, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia who's bewitched you, he goes on to, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Right? He reminds them that they have seen Jesus. Right? That their eyes have seen Jesus. Now, it's not technically true that the eyes of the Galatian Christians had seen Jesus. Right? They were a second generation of Christians. They had heard about Jesus from Paul. But what he's saying to them is that they have had an encounter with Jesus that sparked faith uh, for them. Elsewhere, he talks about uh, faith in hearing. They've heard Jesus. They've seen Jesus. That through Paul's ministry, they came to a vision of Jesus. They saw him as he really was. They saw him in his grace and beauty and goodness. They saw Jesus. And they came to a place where they believed in Jesus. We know elsewhere from 1 Corinthians that Paul describes his ministry when he went into a place. He says that we, when he's describing his ministry in Corinth, he says, we resolved to know nothing while we were with you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? That Paul's entire ministry was this portrayal of Jesus uh, as one crucified, uh, rooted in preaching about the cross uh, of Jesus. And I love that he uses the image, he's using visual language. He says, remember before your eyes, you saw Jesus. 
right? We don't think that this meant that, Paul, well, we know that it didn't mean that Paul had a PowerPoint presentation about Jesus um, or that he showed them a movie about Jesus uh, or even that he, you know, drew out pictures of Jesus. What he means is that in his preaching of Jesus, that it was so real to them that they went from knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus in a real way. Uh, Jonathan Edwards describes this kind of knowing as he says, it's like the difference between uh, me telling you that honey is sweet and you tasting honey on your tongue, right? That it's possible to know things about Jesus. But what Paul's saying here is, no, no, you saw him, you experienced him. His love wasn't abstract to you. His death wasn't something that happened way back then. It was something that you saw, that you heard, that became a part of you. And he describes him as you, you, you saw him as crucified. The words that he uses here for as crucified uh, really mean you saw him as one who had been crucified. Right? This is a, a past perfect. Right? So you saw Jesus. Not, you know, what this means is that he, they saw Jesus as more than just his crucifixion, but also his resurrection. Right? They saw him as one who had been crucified, but who was no longer crucified but now lived as still a crucified one, right? Revelation gives us this image of Jesus on the throne. As a, uh, John says that he saw him there as a lamb who had been slain, but he was no longer a dead lamb. He was now a living lamb that bore the marks of being slain. That Jesus is a resurrected one who in his resurrection bears the marks of his crucifixion, who bears the marks of his death. We see that when he appears to Thomas, and says, look, if you don't believe, touch my hands, put your hand in my side. We have the vision of him and his ascension sitting in the throne of heaven, still bearing the scars of one who died. And Paul's saying, this Jesus, this crucified, resurrected, and ascended Jesus is enough for you. He described him earlier in chapter 2. Remember, he says, the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He said, this Jesus who died and who lives and who loves you, who gave himself for you, he is enough. He is more than enough. Enough not just for the beginning of your Christian life, right? Enough not just to get you to walk an aisle or pray a prayer. Uh, Enough not just to get you started on the path, but enough to get you across the finish line. Enough to get you to the end of your race, to fullness, to completion. And you don't need to move on from him to something else. So he reminds them that they've seen Jesus. He also reminds them that they've received the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He goes on to say in verse 5, did he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's telling them, look, you have received the Holy Spirit. When you believed, uh, connected to their faith, you received the Holy Spirit. You received the Spirit. Notice here when Paul uh, speaks of the Spirit, your Bible capitalizes it. It's an uppercase S. Because Spirit in the Bible is a personal name. Every bit as much as Jesus. right? Every bit as much as any of the characters in the Bible. That the Spirit is not a... uh, a benevolent force. It's not uh, warm, fuzzy feelings that you get. Uh, It's not an energy. It's not a higher life. It's none of those things. The Spirit is a person. The Spirit is properly a he, not an it. 
It's God, he is God himself. And it's hard for us to keep that straight. It's hard for us in our minds to think of the spirit as a person. Uh, Because spirituality in our world has taken on such a nebulous range of meanings. Right? If you if you walk through the aisles of your bookstore, should you still have one nearby? Uh, or if you browse uh, Amazon, right? You will see that uh, one of the best-selling sections of books is what's broadly defined as the spirituality section. Right? And spirituality contains literally everything that appeals to that part of our lives that's that we don't think of as governed by facts, that we don't think of as governed by the hard sciences. That spirituality can be anything that has to do with what you feel, what you believe, about the inner life, about the higher life, right? And we are hungry for real spirituality. We're hungry, and the sales of, of these books, uh, you know, proves it, right? That we're hungry, human, humanity is hungry for a sense of transcendence, for a taste of something beyond the physical life, beyond the life of what we can see and touch and taste and smell. And the language that we apply to that generally is spirituality. We long for a genuine spirituality. But when we come to the New Testament, when we read the language of spirit, it's tempted for, tempting for us to think of it in those terms. That the spirit is the, that, that ineffable, untouchable energy behind life. But Paul is clear that the spirit, no, no, the spirit is God himself coming to make his life with you and in you. Right? The Spirit is God. We have this scene, uh, you may remember it in 2 Chronicles, uh, where after the, the people of Israel under Solomon have been on this generation-long quest to build a temple in Jerusalem. God gave them instructions for the temple. God told them how to build the temple. And now finally, after all of these years and after all of this effort, the temple is finished. It's built and it's beautiful. And Solomon launches out in, uh, in 2 Chronicles 6, he launches into a chapter-long prayer. And all of the people of Israel, the residents of Jerusalem, are around him praying with him. And their prayer is that God would come and live in the temple, right? They've spent uh, the equivalent of millions of dollars and, and years and years of people's lives and man, man hours to build this temple. And now they're, they're going, this is all going to be empty if God himself doesn't come and live in the temple. The end of 2 Chronicles 6 says this, Solomon's praying, he says, And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. And as soon as Solomon finished this prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. So the glory of God, the presence of God, falls and fills the temple, and the whole city rejoices. Solomon rejoices, the priests rejoice, everyone rejoices. It's this incredible moment of God himself coming to live with his people. And Paul is saying that that's what's happened in you by faith. That just as much as God's God's spirit filled that golden temple, so he fills your life, he fills your heart. He gives you a new power to live this life 
He's going after the Galatians for living under the power of their own flesh, the power of their own efforts, the power of their own works of the law. He says, no, no, you have a power greater than any of that. You have God himself living within you by faith. This hidden treasure. One of my favorite books, probably my my favorite books uh, outside of the Bible, uh, are the Lord of the Rings books. Lest you think for a moment that I was cool, uh, I am not. And uh, there's, this great, uh, there's this great scene in the Lord of the Rings books uh, where uh, Bilbo Baggins uh, from The Hobbit, I know I've lost a bunch of you, but Bilbo Baggins, um, he comes back and he gives for his quest, he gives Frodo, right? These are the little people. These are the hobbits. Um, he gives him two things for his journey. He gives him a sword, this little sword that's just right for a hobbit. Uh, and he gives him uh, a ch- essentially a chainmail shirt uh, made out of the su- a substance called Hey, all right. Um, <laughs> so he, he, gives, he gives him a shirt made of a substance called mithril. Uh, man, all right, we got it all over here. Um, some of y'all, are, I like these two. Some of y'all are embarrassed of your nerddom and don't want to admit that you know this stuff. But so he gives them this gift, and it's the most valuable substance in their world, in this fictional world. Uh, it's, uh, he finds out at one point that it's more valuable, this one shirt uh, is more valuable than the entire land that he comes from, than all of the land, all of the houses, all of the produce of this area. This one shirt is more valuable than any of it. it can, uh, it's not only financially valuable, but can also repel uh, any attacks. It's a powerful armor. And so when Bilbo gives it to him, Frodo, the humble hobbit, says this. He says, I can't wear that. I should look, well, I don't think I should look right in it. Bilbo says, well, that's just what I said myself. But never mind about looks. You can wear it under your outer clothes. Come on and put it on. Very well, I will take it, said Frodo. And Bilbo put it on him, and he fastened Sting, that's little sword, around the glittering belt. And then Frodo put over the top his weather-stained clothes, tunic and jacket. Just a plain hobbit you look, said Bilbo. But there is more about you now than appears on the surface. Good luck to you. At one point when Frodo becomes aware of how valuable it is, uh, Tolkien says that he grabs it uh, and he can feel the weight of this thing, even though it's quite light, because he realizes this treasure, this immense treasure that sits underneath his ragged clothes, that he has a real treasure of incredible both practical and material worth. And the Holy Spirit is much like that in the life of a Christian. Right? You don't see it on the outside. It's something that nobody, when you, you know, uh, the, the chances are nobody on the outside knows what's going on in your inner life. They don't know about this power, the person of God himself that lives within us. Uh, and though we're humble on the outside, humble hopefully on the inside, we bear with us this incredible treasure. And I find that especially uh, in some, some of our circles, uh, that the Holy Spirit is often thought of uh, kind of as the afterthought add-on to the gospel, right? It's believe in Jesus, uh, and you will have eternal life. You will have life with God. You'll have forgiveness. You'll have justification. You'll have acceptance. And oh yeah, you'll also have the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the, would you like a hot apple pie with that uh, at McDonald's, <laughs> right? It's just the, it's, the, it's the add-on at the end that you don't think much about. But think about it. God himself living within you, 
The Spirit of Christ living His life in you and through you. Paul says, how can you ever then want to move on to other things? How can you then think that there's something out there that you'll get if you just do enough good things, earn it, or attain to it? That if you learn to pray right, live right, do right, that there's something more beyond the horizon. He's saying you've already got God himself living his life in you. And he's clear to point out that you receive this spirit by faith. That you receive the spirit by faith, not by works. Right? There's a sense even in which the spirit precedes faith. Paul will elsewhere talk about that you could not even believe if not for the work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that helps you to see and to hear Jesus. It's the Spirit that brings you to Jesus. But here what he's talking about is he's contrasting it to to our works. right? And there is a way of thinking that's pretty, pretty common out there, that there are works that are required for you to really have the Spirit. right? That if you really want the Holy Spirit, then you need to learn to pray a certain way, you need to learn to sing a certain way, you need to learn to act a certain way. That if, this, if you really want the Spirit, yeah, all Christians kind of have the Spirit. But if you really want the spiritual life, if you really want the higher life, if you really want the spiritual gifts, then there's this other thing you need. Some people talk about it as a second baptism. Uh, other people talk of it simply as kind of this more enlightened spiritual experience. But Paul says, look, you wouldn't even be a Christian. You wouldn't even be in Christ if the Holy Spirit hadn't worked a miracle within you. If he hadn't brought you from death to life, you already have all that you need by faith in the Spirit. And then finally, Paul tells them, uh, not only do they have Christ, not only do they have the Spirit, uh, but they've been received into a new family. Uh, This is, uh, what Paul does here is just, it's awesome, it's brilliant. Uh, Look at uh, verses six and seven. He says, uh, or did you receive it by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This language of the children of Abraham uh, was some of the preferred language of the Israelites to describe themselves. Remember, we've talked about how in Galatia there was this racial, cultural, and moral division between those who had come into the church from an Israelite Jewish background and those who came in from a Gentile background, those who had been uh, Greeks or Romans, a non-monotheistic Old Testament believing Israelite. And that the Israelite Christians looked down on them, believing them to be sub-Christians, less than God's people because they weren't uh, followers of Moses. They weren't children of Abraham. And so what Paul does uh, in an effort to correct them is he says, okay, you want to talk about being children of Abraham. You brag about being children of Abraham. You look down on those who are not biological children of Abraham. And yet he says that that all those who have faith are the sons of Abraham. Just as it's said of Abraham that he believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So they're taking pride and boasting, we're the children of Abraham and others aren't. We're the good ones, we're the ones who are in the right, we're the ones that God really likes. These other people, these strange people that eat weird food and do strange things and have bizarre customs, they don't belong in our family. 
And Paul's saying, look, you are try- what, the people that you're saying don't belong in the family. Abraham himself would have looked at as the fulfillment of the promise that was made to him. If you look back at Genesis chapter 12, when God makes his promise to Abraham, remember if, you've, uh, if you're familiar with Genesis, most of the, fir- the first 11 chapters of Genesis uh, deal with the big picture stuff. The whole world's involved. It's creation, it's the flood, it's the Tower of Babel. But then at, at verse tw- chapter 12, he calls a particular man and his particular family, not at the expense of the rest of the world, but so that through this one family, he could bring his redemptive promise to the whole world. And so this is how God addresses Abraham. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now the Israelites received that promise, and the way that they thought it was going to work Right was that as they became a nation, their nation would conquer the world, that they would expand their rule to the ends of the earth, and then all of the other nations would come to worship their God. But what Paul is telling the Israelites is that this promise, that the nations of the earth, the families of the earth, would come to know Abraham's God, has been fulfilled through Jesus. That as he announced that, that God's grace is open to all people, regardless of uh, their ethnicity, regardless of whether they were part of God's Old Testament covenant people. This is a new family. It's a family defined not by genealogy or blood, but by faith. It's a new family of God. And that these uh, Judaizing Christians are going to have to get used to the idea of being in this unusual family, in this uncommon family, where they're supposed to be eating and doing life with people who act, look, talk, speak very, very differently than them. Paul's telling them that if you want to live in this new world made by the gospel, you're going to have to care more about embracing the new people in your family than than about policing the boundaries of your family, than about being worried about who's in, who's out, who's qualified, who's disqualified, who belongs, who doesn't belong. It means that you're going to have to celebrate with God and with Abraham the fact that he has knit together this mosaic community this community that's made up of all of the colors and peoples and languages of the world into a new family called by grace. That is part of the gospel, right? It's amazing, isn't it, that that we, the church, imperfect though we are, broken as we are, in our own failing efforts at, at, at loving one another, that we are a part of God's good news, Not only the life and death and resurrection of the Son, not only the outpouring of the Spirit, but His sending out a people to be a reconciled and reconciling people into all of the different nooks and crannies of this world, including Center City Jacksonville. That's a part of God's plan and promise for this world. It's a part of the good news. It's a part of the resources that we have when when we seek after fullness. When we seek after the real and authentic spiritual life, we have Jesus who gave himself for us. We have the spirit who lives in us. And we have the people that you're sitting next to. We have the body and blood, flesh and blood presence of the people of God to uphold us, to encourage us, to lead us on. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you 
that as empty as we may feel at times, that we are full in Christ. Though there are times where we wonder what else uh, there might be out there for us, you've promised us that you have already given us all things in Christ, that we are heirs with Christ of an eternal inheritance, that we are heirs of the Spirit, that you have given us all that we need in this life. Lord, when we feel restless, when we feel hungry for more, help us to go not beyond Jesus, but deeper and deeper into Jesus. When we long uh, for more of the Spirit, help us to pray and to keep in step with your Spirit. Holy Spirit, have your way more and more in our hearts and in our lives. Remake our lives more and more into the image of Jesus. Lord Jesus, would your gospel, would your glorious good news, your grace, Be for us not only good news to die by, but good news to live by. Every day of our lives, Lord, would it shine light to help us know the depth of the love that you have for us. Lord Jesus, help us to live as people of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.